I know you would agree it's a beautiful name, but not everybody does. I, I'm wondering in public, do you still hear people use Jesus' name in vain? I don't hear it so much because, you know, the pastor thing, so... People tend to not do that around me, unless I'm like in line at Home Depot or someplace and somebody's cursing somebody else out. Isn't that a remarkable thing, though, that what can be to one portion of the population, the name of salvation, can be to another group of people like, Jesus Christ, can you get your act together? Just saying. Nobody does that with the name of Buddha or Muhammad. Jesus Christ's name is taken in vain, yet we really need Jesus Christ to come back and fix things. Had anything go wrong in your life this last week? Last three months? Last two years? We really desperately need Jesus to set things right again. I want to examine Genesis chapter 3 with you this morning. I'm going to invite you to turn there if you have a, maybe electronically on your phone or maybe you've got a hard copy. You'll, you'll see the verses up on the screen. If you're new to New Hope, that will help you follow along. But before we get into Genesis chapter 3, I'd love to pray with you. So would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that we can come before you and be ushered into your presence just by mentioning the name of Jesus that we're ushered into the throne room. And in this moment, whether we're watching virtually or we're here in the auditorium, we're in your presence, and we're told that you hear us. So we come before you collectively asking that you would indeed be our teacher and guide and help us to value the name of Jesus because we really recognize we need him to fix things. So we come before you with our broken relationships and our broken bodies and whatever else is broken in our world, asking not only that you would set things right again, but for this moment, right now, in this next 30 minutes, that you would illuminate our minds and cause us to see what you wanted us to see by asking Moses to record these things. Teach us now. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. So we left off last week with looking at what God pronounced as the curse on Satan in Genesis 3.15, and I told you we needed some time to wrap up Genesis chapter 3, and we'd hopefully get to the end of the chapter today. We're not going to get there, um, but we will get through what God had to say to Eve and what he had to say to Adam as a result of what they did. Here's where we left off last week. Look with me at this at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And anybody who's not really familiar with the Bible reads that and says, what? Like, what is that talking about? And we talked last week about the reality that's God uttering prophecy about what is about to happen, of what the curse will look like, and he just begins the curses there. So we saw in verse 15 last week, it's, it's containing this really puzzling obscurity. Like it leaves you with the question, who is the seed of the woman? What's he referring to there? It's very obvious as you study it, the purpose of God in this statement here is not to answer that question. Rather, it's to raise the question. 
It's to cause those who would read it and those who would hear it to look forward in anticipation of the fulfillment. God said there's one coming who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And he doesn't tell them exactly what that means. He just leaves it hanging there. But what they do know is it's going to be through the line of a woman. It's not coming through the line of a man. It's coming through the line of a woman. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, the remainder of the Bible is the answer to the promise of Genesis 3.15. All of the Bible points back to Genesis 3.15. All of the Bible points forward to the arrival of Jesus. This answer is given throughout the remainder of the Bible. So today, in 2022, we have the answer to this huge mystery. It's because of the clarity and the brightness of the New Testament shining back on Genesis chapter 3 that illuminates it. It, it makes it come to life. And we can understand that this prophecy is of the future plan for Jesus to come to this planet and restore everything to make all things new again. So I ask again, did you have anything go wrong in your life this week? Anything break that you didn't expect to break? I have to do a funeral in about a week or so. And every time I do a funeral, I try and remind those who come to the funeral. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. Death is not some friendly human phenomenon. We've accepted it because it's all we know. It's what we've lived with. But it wasn't the intention of God that death would enter our world. It, it entered because of sin. But Adam and Eve are on the very backside in Genesis 3, 15 and 16, and they're just hearing this curse. And I'm just going to ask you to imagine for a moment. Imagine with me how vague, how obscure this very forward-looking statement would appear to the ancients. How could they possibly know what to do with it? Except this, except believe God and anticipate the fulfillment. So they had a choice. Do they believe God or do they not believe God? We're going to examine how that plays out in their world today. That there could be one who would be coming who will destroy Satan. That there could be one, that that promised one will not only have the capacity to crush Satan, but will obliterate death so that we don't have to deal with it anymore. Thus, when Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, they're sent out with a sense of hope. They've lost paradise. And in the midst of their lost paradise, they're sent out into the wilderness with hope. And the issue that all humans face, you face it today, all humans face from this point forward is fundamental to human existence. Okay, I'm separated from God now. How can I become right with God if I'm separated from him? I've got so much I've done wrong in my life. There's so much sin. How can I ever get back to that place? What am I supposed to do? that's fundamental to all human existence. And that issue is compounded by another huge complication. We don't even know that we don't even know. John Calvin actually said it this way in 1560, we have lost our ability to know that we have lost our ability. We don't even realize how far we've fallen. Martin Luther wrote in the 1500s that mankind, he said this in Latin, man is 
incurvatus, incurvatus and say. In other words, we're curved inward. From the fall forward, we're curved inward because we're always looking spiritually inward to ourselves for answers. We look to ourselves for emotional solutions. We look for spiritual solutions. We're in covertus and say, as opposed to looking out toward God. Naturally, that's what we are. We'll come back to that. Before we can get to this new frontier that they're about to step into, before we can get to the wilderness which they're about to face, we have to look at the remainder of the consequences of the fallout. And we start with this thought. I hope you agree with this. God is holy and just. If you agree, say amen. That means he cannot do anything unjustly. Because he's holy and because he's just, everything that he does has to be acting with justice. And divine justice is about to announce consequences. But as we read the consequences, we have to remember everything God does is done with a purpose. So when you look at the consequences, they're not just to be punitive. It's not like an early penal system where you're going to jail. There's always a purpose in God bringing about the consequences. And these consequences are calculated and they're designed to keep humans, to place humans in this place of direct remembrance of their choice because they're about to receive consequences as a result of their choice. So go with me to verse 16, and he says this. To the woman he said, this is God speaking, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. No danger in misinterpreting that one, right? <laughs> so glad this didn't fall last weekend just before Valentine's Day. <laughs> I want to make sure I get this one right. I want to make sure I understand this one. We all need to understand this because we've seen that abused. Now catch this. Big picture. Eve has just been told she's going to be in great pain giving birth to little sinners. And she's going to be in subjection to a really big sinner. That's not much of a future, you think. Let's acknowledge. Within that statement, there's this inherent storm brewing. You can feel it within yourself. Those words incite conflict. Under the surface in those words, there's something that's foretold in two very distinct statements. There's going to be desire and there's going to be rule. And we want to make sure we understand what God is referring to. And we know that God is not the author of confusion. It's not who he is. So there's got to be a purpose in this. I'll tell you that I'm, I'm old enough and I've traveled far enough to know that things in our world for the journey of women on this planet are difficult. Half the audience knows that. You understand the reality. It can be very difficult. American life is fantastic, yet as fantastic as it is, women still struggle here, let alone what women face in third world countries. You ought to go to some of the places that I've seen in Africa and what they're living with in the slums in the ghetto. You see it no matter where you go on the planet. Women struggle. Throughout human history, it's been very, very hard. And in many places in third world countries, very little has changed since the ancient days. Because of this, men who have very little interest in the things of God, 
They ignore women's feelings, their emotions, their needs, and their sufferings. Was that God's design in Genesis chapter 3? No, absolutely not. That was not God's design. It is an aspect of the fallout of sin, but that was not God's intention. That throughout history, women would be made to feel as though they're conquered? Hear this. Harsh treatment of women is not the design of God. It was not the design of God, and it is not what Genesis 3 is condoning. I want to amplify that with you. Sin brought about loss, and we understand that. It's not a newsflash to us. It brought about a loss of the design for healthy relationships, and it made life very, very difficult. So apart from the general sufferings that we all deal with every single day in this fallen world that we're in, there is a unique area of struggle that belongs to women, and God calls it out right here. There's this realm of dealing with men who refuse to behave in a godly manner. And God says, and in the burying of children, Eve, it's going to be hard. It's been true throughout history, and it continues today. It is the unique responsibility for women to bear children. We know that they're built for that physically and have to deal with men who do not understand them, nor listen to them, nor care for them compassionately with any understanding. So this consequence that Eve is facing, she's coming head to head with, has got two major areas of a woman's life moving forward, her life with her children and her life with her man. And it was very difficult dealing with men in ancient times, but I would say from the perspective of things today, it isn't any easier dealing with us guys who are in the midst of a very fast-paced 21st century high-tech world. I can say that because I are one. I know, we don't make women feel always the most appreciated. Today, men can be just as insensitive to women as they were 3,000 years ago. But as we just said a moment ago, that, that is not God's design. It was not God's design and the consequences of sin. The result in Genesis 3 was to be used by God to accomplish something much more. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about what the much more is in the midst of human conflict. Why would God ever put that in place? What does he want to accomplish out of this that could be even greater? Well, let's break it down. Go with me into Genesis 3.16. This is part A. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Now, that's not just talking about the actual delivery room experience. It's talking about the entire consequence leading up to delivery. It's talking about the nine months of pregnancy, but it's also talking about all of the monthly issues that go along with it. But here's what's really clear. God still intends that men and women will carry out his original mandate. His original mandate, remember that from Genesis chapter 1? That they would be fruitful and multiply? Let me put this up for you on the screen. Genesis 1, 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, meaning we talked about that, the race of Adam, the race of humanity. Next part, verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Genesis 3.16 indicates they're still going to have the blessing of having babies. They're still going to get to fill the earth with other little humans. So that tells us marriage didn't change as a result of the fall. 
One man, one woman, cleaving together for life. That's God's design, that a male and female will join for life and create one flesh and care for children. So they're still going to procreate, but there's a change. There's now going to be pain, and there's going to be death, and it's going to exist in their world. So check this. The human race will survive. God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. He meant spiritual death. They're going to begin to decay. Biologically, they will die eventually. But spiritually, they die in the moment that they sinned against God. So the human race will survive, but each individual offspring will die and going to be replaced by new offspring that will replenish the earth. It's going to be a short biological life. So even though 316A is really, really hard, 316B describes what will turn out to be a struggle between the genders, how the male and female will or will not get along. So 16B says this, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And immediately you want to ask the question, what does rule mean? Because we had that conversation in staff meeting this last week, Wednesday. Immediately, some of the gals said, that's not seeming to be too fair. Or what does rule mean? I want a definition for that. Because does that like have a Hebrew meaning that means like he's going to be really nice now? I want to know what's the Hebrew word for rule. Okay, well, let's, let's dive into that. We recognize that male and female relationships have fallen prey to this upside-down chaos that sin brought into the world. To what extent is it altering their world, and how did that relate to us today? Well, God had already declared in chapter 2, they're going to procreate. It's going to be a central task to the existence of humans on earth. Part of their responsibility is to be fruitful and multiply. But Eve's got this internal change going on. Biologically, something is changing. There's now some form of a biological, anatomical change to her body because God says now pain is going to be there. Pain will increase greatly. And she's going to continue her ordained role as a childbearer, but going to experience the consequence of painful childbirth. But at the same time, that consequence nurtures hope. How does it do that? Well, for one because it assumes that she's going to live. Biologically, her life isn't extinguished. She's going to live to bear children. So she's not going to die, and procreation will still be part of God's plan for her. This wonderful blessing that God has given to humanity to make more eternal beings. We're the only ones who get to do that. We get that, that privilege. But ironically, now bear with me on this. I don't want to leave you in a fog on this. Ironically, the blessing echoes the penalty. In the consequence, you hear the blessing, and in the blessing, you hear the consequence. By this new twist, this, this change that God has announced in a very real labor, physical struggle with pregnancy, the vehicle of her vindication reverberates in the very deliverance that she bears. Uh, and this is where there's a danger of leaving you a fog. Hear it this way. Childbirth signals hope. But the labor that she's going through is this perpetual reminder of the consequence of sin and the need to be delivered from it. 
Every time something is broken in your world, every time there's pain, every time there's struggle and suffering, constant reminder, man, I need Jesus. Man, I need Jesus. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's why the authors of the New Testament ended their writings with that. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come back and fix this. She's got this constant reminder while she's going through labor. I need Jesus. We really need him to fix things. But God doesn't stop there. That's an internal change. There's an external change here. And as we've already said, you know that sin taints relationships. But specifically, in relation to Eve's position to Adam, there's a peer change. She's still Adam's wife and still his partner in forging this new life in the wilderness. And she's still his intellectual counterpart. But even though that's all true, she now finds herself facing a change in relation to their roles. For one, because she willingly surrendered her position of dominion over the created order. You remember that from chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're told that God pronounced over the man and woman that they would be co-rulers over the earth, co-kings over creation. But when creation comes in the form of temptation to her, she doesn't exercise dominion over that creation, and she yields to that serpent. And so she's willingly surrendered her dominion over creation, and she's usurped the authority when drawing Adam into sin. This is where it gets dicey, as though it hasn't been already. Look with me at this statement in Genesis 3.16, yet your desire will be for your husband. Now, the meaning of desire, you might as well know, is highly disputed, even among the most learned of theologians. Highly disputed because of the word structure that's there. Some people take the tack that, well, what that's talking about is physical, sensual desire, that she's going to have great sensual desire even in the midst of childbirth. Well, that's probably true to some degree. There's still going to be procreation. Even though there's this mental awareness, this is going to cause me a lot of pain. That's probably true to some degree. But here's a bigger meaning of it, I think. In the context of the fall, the desire of Eve was an attempt to entice her husband, if you will, to rule over him, taking that position to draw him into her sin action. And now God ordains there's going to be a consequence, Eve. You've taken a step here in ruling over him, and now the man's going to exercise a leadership role in relationship to you. Not that he didn't have a strong role before, but mind you, they were in perfect harmony before this. There was no sin. Their relationship as co-equals was absolutely perfect. But now it's not. So what type of rule are we to understand here? The nature of rule absolutely depends on really varying circumstances in which the authority is exercised. Let me put it in other words. We've all seen bad leaders, and we've all seen good leaders. The Bible actually says when good leaders are in power, the people rejoice. So imagine if Jesus was running for president. Would you vote for him? Jesus for president? Like any generation of any age would say, yeah, give me that. Perfect leadership because people would go, yes, the king has returned. He's in power. So no one struggles when there's good leadership. 
And when good leadership does what it's supposed to do and they take their responsibility seriously, the Bible actually says people long for that. They desire it deeply. But there's the negative side and the positive side of leadership. The Bible uses the exact same word to rule when it speaks of despots and tyrannical leaders as it does when it speaks of good leaders like Solomon. It actually uses it metaphorically when it speaks of God as the sovereign king of the earth. It doesn't bear down and give us any specific detail. So this term is used far too broadly to isolate a specific meaning. But you can know this. It certainly doesn't mean tyrannical leadership. And it's certainly not indicating man will rule in like the sense that he rules and subdues the earth. It's not even the same word that's used there. To the contrary. Ancient Israel actually provided safeguards for protecting women from very devious men. And the New Testament, it goes even further to admonish women and husbands, men and wives, to practice mutual submission to each other. Let me show you a couple examples. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, just imagine with me for a moment that I've got a bride and groom on the platform right now. I do this in every single wedding that I've ever done. 22-year-old bride, 22-year-old groom, just picture them standing here and they're making eyes at each other and they can't wait for you all to go away so they can go do their honeymoon. And they're excited and then I, I have them in the midst of my grip, in the midst of a wedding ceremony, and I share that verse with him, and I turn to the groom and say, you know what that's saying? That you've got to love this bride in the way that Jesus loved the church. That's the highest, highest form of love possible to the degree that Jesus laid down his life for the church. That doesn't sound like tyrannical rule to me. That doesn't sound like putting someone in subjection that's what Scripture commands us to do, or in Ephesians 5.33, look at this one. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. That is a great verse. Love and respect. Somebody should write a book about that. I mean, I think it would sell. That's good. That's a great verse. And then the Bible goes a step further. New Testament actually commands husbands to exercise love without harshness. Look at this. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Make sure you read that right. Look at the Greek word in your notes and you're going to see it means to not make them bitter. Don't give your wife a reason to be bitter. Don't give the women in your life a reason to be bitter. Why is that written? But because of the harsh reality that that kind of behavior and that dominance was a real part of their world. It's a real part of our world. But it's not biblical. Biblical is to love them to the degree that Christ loved the church. So if you're asking how do I understand this word desiring before we move into Adam's penalty, here's how I understand it. This sense of desiring is this, as Eve demonstrated an innate desire to gain an upper hand, she wanted more. What did Lucifer offer? He said, I know you've got a lot here, but you could be more. We talked about this last week. God declares who you are in him. He says you're complete. 
But Lucifer comes along and says, no, you're lacking. You're missing something. And she demonstrated this innate desire to gain an upper hand, and she wanted more. And at the same time, during that wanting more, she took the opportunity over her man by enticing him into the same desperate actions that she was carrying out, completely complicit. And it was contrary to the will of God. So check this. Her actions there stood in sharp contrast to this perfect image of a husband and a wife joined together as one flesh, united as co-kings over the earth. So I hear God saying, now Eve, your desire will be that he will rule and lead you spiritually. And at the same time, you're going to fight against that fleshly desire to rule over him. Man, I know that's really challenging. Like I said, I am one. And I know, guys, that's a hard thing to think of yourself as a spiritual leader. And, and maybe you find yourself at this place where you're not yet doing that in your relationship with women. That you would lead spiritually would be God-honoring. First of all, maybe it starts really simple, guys, with just praying over your wife. Or maybe let your wife or your kids catch you reading Scripture. Start there. It, it's just a simple thing. But this leadership thing that God's talking about, this is, this is real, a real responsibility. And God says, Eve, in this, you're going to find this conflict. Your desire, it's not always going to be there. Why would God use that? God does everything with a purpose. And there's this constant reminder here. When the male-female relationships don't always get along, it's this reminder that I really need Jesus to fix this. I really need this promised one to make all things new. You had anything go wrong ever in your life with a male or a female? You need Jesus. It's another signpost. So Eve is completely culpable, but it's through deception. To put it really blatantly, she was conned. That's what Scripture calls out. It says this very specifically in 1 Timothy 2.14. The woman being deceived fell into transgression. In contrast to the willful rebellion of Adam. So going forward, Eve is going to play this really crucial role in liberating humans by her role as a childbearer. Because God promised through her, through the seed of the woman, is going to come the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. So she's going to play this really critical role. And in with the marriage relationship, she's placed in this place of subjection to her husband as he's now going to carry this huge burden and a responsibility to lead well as they forge this new life in the wilderness. So where Eve was deceived, Adam is condemned. He's condemning humanity. That's what Romans says. Romans 5.12, through one man sin entered to the world and death through sin. So this judgment on man is going to involve his very survival because paradise has now been lost and is being replaced by wilderness. The joy of the garden, replaced by the sweat, it's replaced by the labor and the daily grind of working in the field and every day hunting and harvesting, trying to care for his family. And mind you, work is not the consequence. Scripture says work is a good thing. 
chapter 2, it refers to work as a privilege. It's not sinful. It's the sweat and it's the toil of the work. The obstacles, the broken copier in your office, the flat tire on the way to work. All those things with the world fighting against you. All the obstacles of nature. Constantly reminding, we need Jesus. So God says this to Adam, verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Watch, the curse is not on Adam, it's on the soil. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. This new condition that God has just pronounced, he's pronouncing thorns and thistles, it stands in stark contrast to God's original, beautiful, created order in bringing forth that gorgeous, nutritious orchard that he built. The curse is on the land, Adam. And it's on the land because of you. You are no longer free to eat at my garden restaurant. And God puts up a clothes sign. And mind you, they've been free to eat from any tree of the garden to this point. The open sign at the buffet of the Garden of Eden has been lit up 24-7. Free food. That's been part of God's blessing to them and his pronouncement that everything was good. Free food. Take all that you want. But it's precisely over the issue of eating that Satan challenged the goodness of God. He used food as a way to question God's goodness. So Adam, not deceived like Eve, he chose to disobey. That means it was premeditated because he knew what God's command was. Premeditated to the degree that he chose to heed his wife's voice instead of God's voice. And so as the head of the human race, he's held most responsible. That's why we're told in Adam we all die. The Bible doesn't say in Eve we all die. She was deceived. In Adam, we all die because he willfully and willingly, premeditatedly rebelled against the very word of God. And concurrently, he plunged all of humanity into decay. And as our progenitors who are now in sin there, they cannot transfer to you perfection or holiness because it's no longer in them. It's not there for them to pass on to you. So sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we inherited what they did pass on. We're plunged into decay. Now that's all on the spiritual side of the equation, the spiritual separation because of the fall. But the curse that God pronounces in verse 18, this consequence, it has to do with the physical world which God says is going to be another reminder for you. See, the conditions of the land that Adam now faces are those that you're accustomed to every day. You know what drought is. You know what flood is. You know what infestation is. You know what blight is. You know what decay is. You see it all around the world. You live with it all the time. It's this constant reminder from God. It wasn't always this way. It wasn't intended to be this way. Look to Jesus. It wasn't meant to be broken. Look to Jesus. 
You weren't meant to die. Look to Jesus. That's what these are. These are a signpost. All this infestation, all this decay, all the viruses. Nevertheless, God's grace is still present. Because like the woman, the man's still going to live. He's going to live a long life biologically. But he's spiritually dead now. The man will live. He's still going to gain sustenance from the ground, but it's going to be hard. So God says in verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. This is very ironic because just 24 hours earlier, the ground was under mankind's care in the garden. The soil was his friend. But the source of life is now going to be the source of pain, and the ground is going to fight against him rather than easily serve him. And I told you to notice that the curse wasn't on the ground or on Adam. It was on, it was on the ground, meaning it was on his sphere, the thing that he was going to have to do every day. He's already suffered the greatest consequence. He's fallen. He's in sin. Sin is in him. So this is a secondary thing. Here we're learning that man, who was the king of the earth, is now going to be subordinate to dirt. And it's going to be very, very difficult. Now contrast this with me. I told you in Genesis chapter 2 that Eden was so perfect that we're told that there were four rivers flowing through it, that one head river that broke into four rivers. The two of them still exist today, the Tigris and the Euphrates. We're told another one is called Pashan. I can't remember the name of the fourth one. But this is an extremely fertile area, and it was producing everything that was necessary, free from weeds, free from thorns, free from thistles, free from drought, full of fruit. And all they had to do was just pick up the fruit off the tree and enjoy the fruit, and there was no sweat there. So in their world, there were no workouts. There was no gym to have to go to. There's no decay. There's no flat tires. There's no broken copiers. There's no water in the basement. There's no doctor appointments and no utility bills. There's no need for that. But a cursed earth is the ugly opposite. Lack of water, too much water. Floods, drought. Problems with soil, weeds popping up, it's all fighting back, the weather coming against us, destructive animals eating the crops. To top it off, the birds that were your friends now fly in and eat your seeds. And then you got the infestation, you got the decay, you got the bacteria and all the insects. But the earth is going to yield, and it's going to yield these wonderful crops to enjoy. But for that to happen, it's going to have to be a fantastic amount of ingenuity. And people are going to struggle for thousands of years in order to get that bounty out of the ground. It's only been in the last hundred years that we've had tractors that can go out and do the work for us. Praise God, you can walk in a store and buy a loaf of bread. Does that mean you're not under the curse anymore? No, sorry. <laughs> Still under it. It's just we've, we've become very ingenious. So it ends this way. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So that right there, that reversal describes the decay of your body. We're from dust, and we're going to go back to it. And every funeral service that you ever participate in, every open casket that you ever look in, every death you ever read about, it just speaks volumes of the truth that that's true. What God said is true, 
And it's a truth that defies the progress of modern medicine and the ingenuity of cosmetology. We do everything we can to fight back against it. This might be newsflash for you, but I don't look like I did when I was 22. It's a reality. You don't either. Well, some of you are till 22, so you still do. But <laughs> we decay. Over time, we decay, and that's a constant reminder of the effects of the fall. Should we fight back against the decay? Absolutely. Should we use modern medicine and cosmetology? Absolutely. It's toilsome, though, and it's toilsome labor. And then God says to Adam, it's toilsome labor, Adam, for your entire life, and then you die. But this all paves the way to set the stage for the hope the hope of a new heaven and a new earth when Jesus will make all things new. So this ends this morning actually on a very beautiful note. I hope you see it as a high note. Look with me at verse 20 because this comes just before they enter into the wilderness. Verse 20, now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And now, now you see Adam exercising faith and hope, and authority. You haven't seen that before. This is the first time in the Bible that he actually gets to carry out the spiritual responsibility. He's just given his wife a name of honor. It's a dignified name, and it represents her destiny. So it's his first action of spiritual leadership. He's named her Eve because he's looking forward in time and believing what God said. What constitutes a believer in God? Believing what God said. In the garden, with the tree, he believed Lucifer. But now that God announces the consequences, he says, I, I believe you, God. And he names his wife Eve because she's going to be the mother of all the living. She's actually going to bring forth life. So he's looking forward to that life will bring forth a baby. And in naming her, he's directly saying that as the spiritual leader of his household, he believes God, there will be a future. And now Adam and Eve can live in the hope of God's promise that someone, someday, is going to be born through Eve, through her line, and they will undo the curse that Adam and Eve have brought on the planet. Because God promised the birth of a Savior through the woman and Adam and Eve believed this promise based on what God promised, that he would deal with Satan. So in the pain of every birth from Cain and Abel moving forward, there's this reminder of the hope that lays in God's promise. That tells you and I that in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the trauma that we go through, there's something greater that you're being reminded of. There's something bigger the pain is a reminder of the fall. It's a reminder of the consequences, but it's also a sign of the impending joy that's waiting for you. Let me hammer this home with Romans again. We looked at this over the last three weeks. Just to close it out, look with me at Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. And he's talking about the church here. You a believer in Jesus Christ this morning? Even we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. 
Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And by the way, he's talking about your physical body there. Like, are you ready to trade in this body for a new model? God says through his word that there's a day coming when you're going to get a new body, perfect, without any decay. That's the promise of Scripture. Like, I'll take that. You may not be signing up for it when you're 22, but wait till you're 42. You're going to be going on that promise. When Jesus returns, he will take the curse off, and the Bible says it'll be something like Eden. But until that time, we're dealing with a cursed planet. As beautiful as it is, it fights back. So in toil, all of our life, all the days of our life, it might be that you're going to live to be 70, 80, 90. Maybe God will give you 120 like Moses. I don't know. But all the days of your life, there's going to be toil. Adam lived to be 930. That's what Scripture records. And he says to Adam, you're going to toil all the days of your life. You and I would be happy if you could retire at 65, 70, 75, 80. Adam's carrying a pitchfork when he's 500 still. Like, I can't even carry the guy's water. That's an amazing reality. And at the end of it all, God says the ultimate consequence, Adam, because of all that you've done, there's going to be death. Even though they're terminal, they've been given a future. In the midst of it, they'll never be able to forget the impact of sin. That means for you this morning, all the signposts that come into your life along the way, all the brokenness, all the pain, all the busted relationships, all the disease in your body, it's the constant reminder pointing to the need for the one who will come and restore everything to set it right again. And if I haven't said it before, his name is Jesus. You good with that? Amen and amen and amen. Let's pray together, church. Father, I thank you for the strong reminder from your word this morning and the great clarity that you give through the power of the Holy Spirit. You illuminate in ways that we can't begin to imagine what we didn't even know we were going to understand coming into this this morning because your word is examined. You bring life and hope. You bring reality but you also bring promise, and we believe you for your promise. So, Father, send us out with your blessing. Allow us to speak into the lives of individuals that we know this week that are looking for hope in their life, that Jesus gives a new beginning. I pray, Father, that you would remind us as we face brokenness this week in whatever form it is, that we are in the place where we're also asking for Jesus to come. So we would end the service, Father, by saying to you, even so, come Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.